Before we dig deep into this text this morning, it might be helpful to take a step back, get a 30,000 foot view of where we are and what God has been saying to us throughout these really 15 chapters, two and a half years, no, two years, two, two years almost in the book of Romans. So Romans 1 through 11, this reality that we all stand before a holy God, uh, unjustified. We're unrighteous in his sight. No one, no one, not even those who uh, have the law, are justified by the law. Jews and Gentiles, all alike, right? All subject to God's wrath on the basis of the sin that they know. And yet, we see that God has revealed a righteousness that uh, is in Christ Jesus. Right? That He has done a work in Jesus Christ, uh, finished work that now becomes a basis for our justification. For those who embrace Him by faith are now declared to be righteous in His sight. Now, having been justified, we have peace with God, Romans 5. Right? That nothing can separate us now from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8. That all of this is on the basis of His sovereign mercy. God has done a great saving work in Jesus Christ to save us from our sin and wretchedness. That is Romans 1 through 11. That is the gospel. Amen? Then there is a shift in verse 1 of chapter 12. There's a response to this. An appropriate, reasonable response for those who have now been brought into Christ by this saving work. This, this therefore, in view of the mercy of God. There's a response. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Right? Be transformed. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Bottom line, this gospel has done a work that radically transforms who we are as people. Our identity and radically transforms our behavior. It prompts and promotes a response from us. It's not just an idea to nod our head at. It's a life-altering, eternity-changing just shift in who we are and how we live. So, calls us to change. Change our minds, change our lives, and begin to worship God with all that we are. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but verse 3 of chapter 12 All the way till even this morning, 15, chapter 13. The emphasis of this changed life, the focus of the admonitions, the commands, the focus is relational. That is, this work of God in Christ has reconciled us back to God. It's given us a relationship with God, amen? But then the transformation that takes place, 
the impact of such a work creates a change in how we live, specifically how we treat each other. If you dig back in, find one of the commands that aren't relational in emphasis, that aren't instruction about how the people of God live together or how they're to treat their enemies. That worship is relational. How we relate to God is very much interconnected with how we relate to one another. And here we are seeing again more of this. And the assumption for sure is that that these relationships based on sin and differences and and, and different perspectives that we have, that this is going to be massively difficult, what we're being called to do. Right? That the, there's a flesh and a sinful nature and a DNA in us that God is weeding out over time through the application of the gospel and relating to one another in this way. Or put it worship is going to be a pain in the butt sometimes. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to go against the grain of what we would normally do in our sin and in our flesh. And, not even just that, but just on the basis of we're just all different. Our experiences, our perspectives, our ethnicities, our economic status, our intellect. We're different. And those differences can bring tension. It can cause conflict. It can bring disagreements. Some more heated than others. And ultimately, those kind of things can work against the very thing that God is doing and desiring in his people. It can cause division. That's the very thing that's threatening the church of Rome in the context here division that comes from disagreement. Not on the gospel, but the application of it. The, the ethical application. How do I then now live? What should I eat? What should I drink? What should I not eat or drink? What kind of festivals should we... We have this strong and weak that Paul's been talking about for the, uh, in the last three or four sermons that we've been in. It's going to be hard. So again... We're instructed today, how do we relate to one another? And that's massive importance because it's related to the response that we have to the great work of God in Christ, our relationships. How should those in Christ's church relate to one another? And as we hear this instruction today, we're going to want basis. Like, give me a reason to treat people in the way that the Bible's like, give me a basis, give me a give me rationale. Don't just tell me what to do, tell me why I should do it. Give me basis for such radical claims that we hear today. So, how do we treat one another? And on what basis do we do such a thing? Romans 15, 7 through 13. Follow along with me. Starting in verse 7, as Jeremy indicated last week. The, 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 the subdivisions here are all jacked up. So, verse 7 through 13. Therefore, 
welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is God's word. All God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Disagreements that are causing division. How might one normally or ordinarily respond to having a disagreement? Well, finger pointing. You point the finger at me, I'll point the finger back at you. How about arguments and debates? It like, seems like everything online these days about an important topic is an argument or debate in long Facebook, Twitter feeds, right? I mean, just you point the finger, I point the finger, you, you make a case, I'll make a case, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Not to minimize the need for such discussion and debate about very important things, but nonetheless, that's what we see. Forming alliances. My peeps, your peeps, right? In the church world, we call this church planting. The Lord's called me to plant a church across the street. Oh, really? Just kidding. Uh, But you have seen that, where people in the context of a local congregation feel like the Lord has called them to go do something else. Sometimes it's the right motive, reaching every man, woman, and child, working together in partnership. And sometimes it's just want a church that promotes what I'm about, does my thing, and get people around me that agree with what I'm thinking and what I'm all about, can easily be a result of division. So what is the gospel calling these people to do? Verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So what he's saying to these people who are wrestling with such disagreement, that, that don't, that, like, stay away from division. Matter of fact, go beyond just neutrality and tolerance. He's saying begin to treat one another as family. Pursue one another in relationship. Welcome each other as you would a member of your own family. Accept each other. It means treating fellow Christians as brothers and sisters in an intimate fellowship of the people of God. Right? Welcome one another. Treat each other as family, even those that you might disagree with. Go out of your way to love one another, to be patient with one another. Treat one another in an intimate fellowship that the people of God 
uh, have by the Spirit. And so, in stressing this, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, he's giving the basis for that. He's providing a basis for such a response. He's saying, you're to welcome one another because Christ has welcomed you. And again, that that seems a little illogical, right? Because ordinarily, if somebody points a finger at me, I point a finger back. If somebody punches me, I punch you back. Uh, Maybe simpler, the way someone treats me is the basis of how I treat them. They're nice. I'm nice. They have me for dinner. I have you for dinner. They pay. I pay. Does that make sense? We treat people on the basis of the way people have treated us. It's typically the way it works. But that's not what Paul is saying here at all. That there's a different basis that leads to a different way of relating. Welcome one another as others have welcomed you. No. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That the basis of our relationship is Jesus. Jesus Christ. His action. The way that he related to us becomes the basis upon which we relate to one another. That's the basis. So welcome one another. Treat each other like family, just as Jesus has treated you as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Right? That's radical. But not only that, why does he do it? He does it for the glory of God. Why should we do it? For the glory of God. That the ultimate purpose of how we treat one another is the glory of God. We say as a church that we exist for the glory of God. It's why anything exists. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six. Why does anything exist? For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. Why do we welcome one another? Why do we treat each other in this way? Ultimately, for the glory of God. For God's praise and worship and adoration. For his nature to be displayed in and through our community. For the glory of God. That's why our relationships are to, to, uh, to have a, wel- a welcoming spirit. For the glory of God. Living together. Loving one another. Relationships. All for the glory of God. Is that your motive? Is that your aim? Is that what you want? Like, Is that what you're consumed with at the end of the day? I understand we have a, a secondary goals that are important, like you know, providing and leading, and taking care of our families and, and, and enjoying each other and living life in a way that 
is encouraging to somebody. But what is the ultimate goal of it? It's to the glory of God, right? Isn't it? That gets at our motives. And it also provides a clear pathway. That if the glory of God is our primary motivation, if that is what we want at the end of the day, that this is the way that we're going to treat one another. We can give lip service all day long to the glory of God, that we want Jesus to be praised, that we want to obey him and honor him. But when push comes to shove, how do we treat one another? How do we respond to one another in the midst of struggle and disagreement and even sometimes uh, conflict? How do we treat each other? Well, if your passion's for the glory of God, above all else, it's we welcome each other. We treat each other as family. Even those who we would not normally do so, or, or to some that we might be annoyed at or frustrated with. Someone that gets under our skin all the time. We treat them like family. We want the glory of God. And I think that's important to think about. It's like, what do we want out of these relationships that we have in the body of Christ? Really any relationship for that matter. What do we want from them? Because at the end of the day, it's desire that drives us. Desire drives. We do what we want to do. So the question becomes, what do we want? Well, we typically want the fulfillment of our own desires. We typically want happiness. Treat each other in a particular way so that we get what we want. So that our desires are met. So that our back is scratched. But we see that's not what verse 3 of 15 says. Christ did not please himself, right? Each of us pleases neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Basis. Christ. No, he didn't please himself. Pleased his father. But understand this, he wanted to. He wanted to please his father. He wanted the glorification of his Father. Ultimately, there was no dissonance between what Christ wanted and God's glory. Let me just ask you something. What what is the overarching guide and underlying motive in all of your relationships? Relationships at home? Relationship at work? Relationship in the body of Christ? What do you want? What's your motive? What are you living for? What are you loving for? Is it for the glory of God? Christ did not please himself. No. Christ welcomed us in his family for the glory of God. We're called to welcome one another as family members for the glory of God. So we lay down our temporal desires. We serve others for their good, for their joy. And we welcome them into our our own lives. And I want to be careful because desire itself is not a bad thing. It just is a matter of what you want. 
Like, we're not Buddhists, right? Buddhists would say, empty yourself of all desires. Like, all your desires, just get rid of them, and then satisfaction. Kind of doesn't make sense to me. Right? You, you're ridding yourself of all desires. No, we don't say that. It's just having the right desire. There's no dissonance between the glory of God and the joy of people. And the truth is, is that if you have an, a motivation other than the glory of God in all of your relationships, guess what? You're settling for something less than all that God has for you. That there's no disconnect between your joy and God's glory. Man's chief end, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or if you want to go John Piper, you say man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. It's the glory of God, your passion. It's the glory of God, your aim. Is that your purpose? Is it something else that is the basis and the end of your relationships? I think we, should, we just simply need to evaluate that. What is the operative principle that guides your relationship? Is it your relationship with Christ? Is it how He has treated you? Or is it something else? Is something else, some desire, some dream of your own, that, that some hope of your own that, that dictates and determines the way that you treat other people? Or is it the way they treat you? You see, the gospel prompts a different kind of basis and a different kind of behavior. That Jesus is the great why. He's the great basis. He's the one, when His grace is applied to our lives, radically transforms the, the response that we have and how we treat one another. Does that make any sense this morning? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Is that the vision you have for all your relationships? The glory of God? How God relates to us in Christ is the basis of how we are to relate to one another as His church. That's what Paul's been saying. 12.3 through now. How God relates to us in Christ is the basis of how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ. It's the basis. It's the why. It's the motive. And it's all for the glory of God. But he goes on to even say more to reinforce, to even strengthen them all the more, the basis of such an action. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The basis. Why would we welcome one another in the midst of our differences and disagreements? Why would we fight for and promote unity in all things? Why? Because of Jesus. What he fought for. What he served for. 
Christ served, became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. Here we are again. Christ is serving. He's serving the circumcised. He's serving the people of Israel, right? That's who the circumcised are. And Christ became a servant to them. He served his father. He served his people. And as he served the circumcised, he's displaying an aspect of God's nature. That God is true. That God is faithful. You see, God made promises to the patriarchs. He entered into a covenant with them. And the rest of the Old Testament shows that he was faithful in every way. He made a promise, and he kept it. And he kept that promise in Jesus Christ. Christ became a servant to glorify God, to display his nature in how he treated the patriarchs. God is faithful. God is true. Let every man be proved a liar. God is true. He's faithful. He makes a promise and he keeps it. He follows through on his plan. That gives us such assurance as the people of God. This is the God that we worship. A faithful God who never backs down from any one of his promises. When the world around us would let us down, when people in our lives would make promises and walk away from them, when we are hurt, and sinned against by other... Guess what? It is the faithfulness of God that gives us assurance and hope. It is the faithfulness of God that we can lean into. When all else abandon us, God is steadfast in His faithfulness toward us. Amen? That is the God that we worship. And Christ, in His serving of the circumcised, fulfilled all of that, displayed all of that faithfulness when He came and died in our place for our sin. That's what Christ did when he served. That's how he welcomed us into his family. But not only that, he's doing this for a great purpose that, again, he promised to the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I'm going to bless you, Abram, that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That all the nations will be blessed. I'm going to promise to you, and I'm going to keep that promise through your seed so that all of the world is blessed. I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to be the savior of the world through you and your seed. And so at the same time, while Christ is serving in such a way to promote the faithfulness of God, to, to guarantee the faithful, to confirm the faithfulness of God for his people, he's also at the very same time bringing about his covenant purposes for the world. So that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God. A global vision God has. Through the seed of one, to bless all. Right? Psalm 67. 
Bless us, O God. May the Lord bless us. Why? So that your saving power will be made known where? Among the nations. This has been God's heartbeat from the beginning. To not just be faithful to Israel, but to be the Savior of the world. This is what God wanted. He wanted the nations. And Christ accomplished it. Christ served those purposes. Christ did a lot on the cross. I think we're so good at minimizing. Christ died for my sins. That is so true and real to hold dear to. If you're here today and you're, you're, you're strapped in the guilt of your sin, rejoice in the fact that Jesus came and served you and suffered and died and set you free from sin. Amen? But understand this, that is not the only thing that was accomplished. Every one of God's promises, plans, purposes were all accomplished in one event through one man, Jesus. And he brought about a global work among the nations through Christ Jesus in his suffering and his service. That's what Christ did. So welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. How did he welcome us? He served us. He served. He served a people. He served the circumcision to display God's faithfulness. Oh, and by the way, that was the way he brought about the saving of the Gentiles, who are now bringing glory to his name because of the great mercy that is now given to them, even them. And I think it's really important that we stop for a minute as we talk about God's faithfulness to Israel and God's mercy to the Gentiles, that we just stop for a moment and focus on not just how he saved, but who he saved. Who did he save? To whom did he reveal his faithfulness? A people that were systematically and like consistently, time and time again, radically unfaithful to him. He was faithful to those who were unfaithful to him. And who did he now provide mercy to? The ungodly. It's the unfaithful and the ungodly that are now brought into his saving blessing. That's you and me. That's you and me. We're, we're the undeserved. That, that Jesus is serving the undeserving. That's just radical grace to me. I, it goes against the grain of how we relate in our sins, doesn't it? See, that, that's what God is calling us to, to, to literally grace, the grace of God being the operative defining principle that guides all of our relating together. It's the grace of God. Well, they're a jerk. Perfect. That's great. He said, I'm an idiot. Perfect. What an opportunity for divine grace to be displayed. Because Jesus serves the undeserving. So if you're, you're wrestling in your heart with pain and hurt, and I'm not here to minimize it, it's real. It's real. It hurts. People have sinned against us. I'm not here to minimize that at all. I'm here to point you to the remedy. And that's grace. And that running from it and, and, and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness will not save you. It will not protect you. 
only God's grace that enables forgiveness, that will save. That will be the remedy. If you treat people on the basis of how they treat you, it's inconsistent with what God has done in Christ and what the gospel prompts in every one of us by the power of the Spirit. No, Christ is the basis. He's serving the undeserving. Are we? Now, just, there are certain people just not in the mood for, like ever. There are people like that in your life? Perfect opportunity for divine grace. Perfect opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the basis. Right? To be displayed. For our relationship with God through Christ to, to be the engine that determines how we relate to one another for the glory of God. Anything less is settling. We're settling. We're settling for short-term gains and long-term losses. We're settling. Don't settle in your relationships. Receive grace, give grace. Serve the undeserving because you, undeserving, have been served by Jesus. The gospel is the determining thing about every relationship that we have. Is that true? Is the is the gospel just something we believe and nod at on Sunday morning? Or is it the fabric of our lives? Is it the impulse of our activities? Very important thing to ask. It should be the driving impulse, this idea for every man, woman, and child that we talk about. Why are we so bent on the evangelization of every man, woman, and child in our geography? Because this is what God has wanted from the beginning. Not just a group of people who, who hang out and like each other, that share a certain affinity, that they're all the same. No, a, a diversity in unity, a unity in diversity. This is what God has wanted. Every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and language. Every man, woman, and child. Repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel because that's the kind of people that God wants. That's the kind of people that Jesus has died for and served. Amen? The fabric of our community. That's what missional communities are about, guys. Our lives, relationships, oriented around the gospel. Infused with the gospel. See, the people that meet on Wednesday night, these people would never get together on their own, ordinary, just, yeah, let's hang out. No, they get together because of the gospel. Because of Christ. Putting aside differences and different perspectives, and different ethnicities, and, and experiences. Say, no, we share the gospel and this place together. That's what brings us together. That's what binds us. Well, can we have a young adults group? No, we can't have a young adults group. But we can have a group of people from every generation, perspective, that gather around and share a geography. That's what drives us. This vision. Every man, woman, and child. This is our community. This is the fabric of it. The idea of grace, gospel, Christ's example, serving all of each other for the glory of God, not our own temporal happiness or comfort or ease. It's all for glory. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. 
Well, maybe it's time for a benediction then. Verse 13. After again and again reinforcing this idea that the Gentiles are now glorifying God. This has been the testimony of Scripture again and again and again. From the law, the prophets, um, yeah, the whole testimony of Scripture points to the fact that Jesus died so that the Gentiles might glorify God. Then he ends with this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And he's speaking to all of them. The you is plural. That in the midst of division and disagreement, that Paul's heart for the Roman church is that they all together, united, would be filled, filled with joy and peace. Right? There's nothing that, that strips away joy and peace like division, discord, conflict, right? It's like turmoil, misery, these things that we get in squabbles about. There's nothing that strips the, uh, the, the joy and peace out of life and community than conflict. He's saying, listen, welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. And may you be full of joy and peace that comes from believing. You see, we share a common conviction about the gospel. We believe in Christ. Christ is our Lord and our Savior and our King. We share that. So what comes from sharing that together is a joy and a peace. And of course, a hope that comes from the God of hope. He wants the God of hope. The God who is the only source of hope in a hard and difficult world that seems to give us bad news all the time, that seems to strip us of security and assurances. He's saying, turn to God. He is the source of hope. God is the source of hope. And oh, by the way, he's also the object of your hope. Right? It's, it's what we long for. It's what we strive for. It's what we're going after. It's what we want. Back to that again. We want God. He's our hope. He's who we wait for as we walk through life together, holding on to our common faith. And so he's saying, may the God of hope fill you. Right? We're not Buddhists. We don't empty ourselves. We're full of God, full of the Spirit, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't do this on your own. You're weak on your own. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may overflow or abound in hope. So Paul's vision for this church is that they can weather these disagreements and receive joy and peace From the God of hope, who by the power of the Spirit that's living in them is causing that hope to overflow. Right? That's he fills us to overflowing. What a powerful thing to ask for for these people. In the midst of their disagreements, in the midst of their trials and suffering, their hurting and their pain, the disappointments that they have, even in the midst of ease. They turn to God as their hope. They look to Him as weak people, needing the power of the Spirit, clinging on to hope, and that hope is the glory of God. How God relates to us in Christ is the basis 
of how we relate to one another in his body, in his church. It's the operative principle. Grace, gospel, Christ's servitude, Christ's welcoming of us. Not how other people treat us. When it comes to our marriages, not how they treat us, how Christ treated us. When it comes to our children, not how they treat us. You kidding me? I take a punch in the kidney three times a day. I don't love Silas on the basis of that punch. I love him on the basis of Jesus. Amen? Maybe that was too much information. Here's the deal. It gets a little personal, these moments, for me. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I go through the ups and downs of interacting with Scripture. Maybe you're always on cloud nine with Scripture. You're interacting with it. Maybe you're always living... In, a, in, a, in, a, in that like senior high retreat where you just ran to the altar and cried with all your buddies. Maybe that's you. Every day, man, wow. Praise be to God. I go through seasons when I interact with Scripture. Some seasons I'm like, I don't even know what in the world is going on in the Bible. I keep reading it. Sometimes I'm like, this is boring. It's boring to me. You ever feel that? It's just disconnecting from my life. Sometimes I'm feeling like, wow, this is, like, I'm weeping at verses because it's so powerful and rich, and I, and, I, and I feel it. It's real. Sometimes I go through seasons where I'm affirmed in Scripture, where the promises of God just, just, just hit home in certain moments. And there are other times where I feel like, I'm, that, like God is Clubber Lang just taking out my sin. You guys know who Clubber Lang is, right? Rocky Three. Like every time I read, I'm just, wow, man, I'm sinful. I'm in one of those seasons. Clubber Lang's with me. It's good. Please, Clubber Lang was good too, but God is not Clubber Lang. This is not working out. The point I'm trying to say is God's really challenging me in Scripture, in these Scriptures. How do I treat people? How do I approach relationships? What do I really want for my wife, for my kids, for my kids? As a pastor, like, what do we, what do I, what, what is this about? What are we doing here? It's just like the Lord just keeps showing me. Like, here's your selfishness, bro. Here's your pride. Here's your immaturity. This all comes out in situations, right? It's the moments. We took a 30,000-foot view of this, but it's really the moments where Christ is exemplified and God is glorified. It's the moments often lay in bed at night going, did my wife really experience the nature of Christ in her interactions with me today? I don't think so. And you, see, you see the disappointment in people's eyes when you sin against them. You see it. You know what that really is? It's hurt, but you know what else it is? It's a craving in their heart. Give me Jesus when you talk to me. I want to know Jesus when you talk to me, when you treat me that way. I want, I want to know what Jesus is like. 
My kid's the same. When I slam a door or I'm frustrated or I lose my cool, because sometimes you just can't take it anymore, right? You see the disappointment in their eyes. You know what it is? Daddy, Jesus. Tell, show me Jesus. The Spirit of God's been working on my heart. How do I relate to people? As a, as, a, as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor. I don't feel like talking to him. I just want to watch the NBA. As a neighbor, as a pastor. And I know for sure there have been moments where I've let you down. And I'm not trying to get all weird and emotional here. But in some ways, it's a reminder that Christ is sufficient. Not these super pastors. Christ is sufficient. It brings us all back to basis, right? brings us all back to basis. It's all about Jesus. The greatest motive is Jesus. The greatest rationale is Jesus. The greatest basis is Jesus. It all brings us back to Jesus. More and more, I feel the Spirit of God is welling up inside of me a desire to set a goal every morning that when I go to bed tonight, my wife and my kids and my church will be able to say, Mike, help me know Jesus. Mike, show me Jesus. And that, really, they're not even mentioning Mike. They're just talking about Jesus. They're praising God for Jesus. Just dissipate in the background. Is that your motive? Is that what you want for your wife and your kids, your husband? Is that what you want for your missional community? You're just showing up and doing, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Time to go home. What's the basis Maybe some of you aren't even really interacting at all with people. Kind of isolating, disengaging. There's no real context to welcome. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you're scared. I don't know. I think this calls us to a radical reshaping of our lives around community. Treating each other in a particular way. May Christ be the basis of how you treat one another. And may he fill you with hope, joy, and peace that comes from believing. Thanks for your patience with me this morning. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, you deserve all praise and glory for Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. You're everything to us. Whether we recognize it or not in the moments, we take a step back. Get a 30,000 foot view of history and life. You're faithful. You're merciful. You're bringing about your glory in our lives. You've saved us from our sins. You've served us as undeserved recipients of your grace. You've brought us back into fellowship. And that is now the basis by which all of life is determined and directed. Lord, may Renovation Church be a church full of a welcoming spirit. Relationships exemplifying, representing Christ. It may our greatest passion be not our own happiness, but the glory of Almighty God. We're imperfect vessels. We need the power of the Spirit. We cannot do it on our own, O oh God, but you are the one God who empowers 
what he instructs. Empower this in us, O oh God. May the community look at Renovation Church and say, there's a people that show us what God is like. And may every man, woman, and child see what God is like to come to saving faith. Glorify God amongst the nations. Do a work in us and through us, O oh God. But may we be open-minded to our sin and our struggle and honest about our selfishness. To God be the glory, we pray. Amen.